I felt, you know, I, I don't I don't care if I go to prison because everybody needs to know this shit. And if I have to take one for the team, I will. It's about the abuse of power and it is protecting the vulnerable. And that's what the law should do. We should all be equal in the eyes of the law. And currently you can buy justice and you can buy silence. Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the project manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And this week, again, as always, we'll ask that if you have a couple of minutes in this uh, time of pandemic, if you want to hop on over to iTunes and maybe leave us a, a, re a review and a nice rating, that would be delightful. Uh, we'd love to see the podcast move even further up the charts and get more people hearing all of these excellent conversations that uh, we're having with these really, really cool people. Uh, speaking of cool people, our other new segment for this episode will be hosted once again by the wonderful Jordan Furlong, who you may remember from last week's episode and from the last few episodes of our past season. Um, Jordan is great and always has interesting stories to tell you about what else is going on in the access to justice world. And I believe Jordan's going to expand a bit on that legal technology sandbox that he talked about yes, in the last um, there's been an last pod and now there's been a vote on it. So stay tuned to the end. For that yes. piece. But for today's episode, I'm really excited. I think this is a really big get for us. And having listened to this conversation, a really excellent conversation. So I'll leave Julie to tell you who she spoke to for this episode. Well, this episode is my conversation with Zelda Perkins. And if you're wondering if you recognize the name Zelda Perkins, she was the first woman to break her non-disclosure agreement signed with Harvey Weinstein decades earlier. Mm. And she did that in 2017. And earlier this year, at the beginning of this year, I contacted Zelda because I'm doing more and more work on trying to get NDAs banned. And we have become friends and allies. And she recorded this conversation with me as a consequence of that. So Zelda was a production assistant for Miramax and worked directly with Harvey Weinstein on his film projects for a number of years until she didn't. And she signed a non-disclosure agreement in her early 20s, which she describes as being like having guns pointed at me from every side, not only pressured by Weinstein's lawyer, uh, and bear in mind she was a 20-something year old at the time, but also by her own lawyer something that we're, we're going to get into further in, 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 a, in a few minutes time. And then she found over the years that she regretted this over and over again. And she found she couldn't even explain to prospective employers why she'd left Miramax and her career in Hollywood film production effectively ended as a result. And then she began to hear other allegations against Harvey Weinstein and realized this was serial behavior. And as she describes in our conversation, she started looking for a journalist and a publication that were willing to break the story and risk the wrath of the most powerful man in Hollywood at the time. And she knew she was likely to face an aggressive legal response, but by now she was determined. So let me say no more and let you listen. 
So Zelda, thank you very much for talking today. I am excited to record this with you and we have a lot to talk about. But the first thing I wanna ask you is to take you back to when you decided that you were going to stand up and break your NDA, you know? And I know that there was a lot that led up to that moment. Can you start by telling us, you know, a little bit about what happened when you made that decision? Like what was in your head? Well, thank you very much for having me. First of all, it's really kind of you to to include me in your podcasts. Yes, well, you're right. There was a sort of pressure cooker uh, leading up to me breaking the NDA ultimately in 2017. The catalyst to that moment, the main catalyst was a phone call from Jodie Cantor, who was the investigative journalist from the New York Times, um, who in the end, broke the story about Harvey Weinstein with her partner, um, Megan Twerry, in October 2017. October the 5th, (laughs) which is seared on my brain. But she rang me out of the blue on my mobile phone in July of 2017. And I was at home in Wiltshire in the countryside where I live. And I had just finished a very big job, producing job, and was for the first time in a bit of downtime. Mm -hmm. And I was outside in the yard and I got a call on my mobile from an American woman saying, hi, this is Jodie Cantor from New York Times. And my heart sank because over the years I have had these calls wanting to talk about Mr. Weinstein. And I, you know, I always have to avoid them. And, but she said to me, I'm not ringing to ask you about anything. I'd just really like to, I'd just really like you to listen to me because I have a few things that I'd really like to tell you. She started telling me all sorts of things, particularly about my own case, which I knew that she could have only known. There are only about four people in the entire world that knew those details. And they were people who were on the other side of this non-disclosure agreement that I had signed when I was 25. And then she also started telling me some personal details and stories that she knew about Harvey and Harvey's love life and Harvey's personal life and Harvey's professional life that I also knew could have, they were very specific Mm -hmm. and they could have only come from people in his very, very inner circle top executives at Miramax or the actresses themselves. And it's the first time that anybody had come to me with that information and a lot of information that I didn't know. So do you think she was doing this to establish some trust with you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the funny thing is, is I remember (laughs) I was in a really bad mood that day, particularly bad mood which actually worked in her favor. Normally that would work against someone, but it worked in her favor. And I didn't have, I didn't have anything to do because normally I'd have been too busy and I wouldn't really have taken the time to listen. And so I listened to her and I was like, okay, well, that's all quite interesting. And I said, look, thank you very much for your phone call. Uh, Can I please give you a call back tomorrow? Because I just wanted to do a little bit of my own due diligence because I had no idea who she was. Right. And she said, you know, I'm this person, I'm that person. She said, I'll send you some links to some articles that I've done. And then I said, yeah, that would be really nice. So it was, it was, she did it very properly in 20 years. She's the first female journalist who called me. And it didn't mean that I trusted her anymore, but it did make a difference. 
And I mean, partly because I was in a bad, I mean, I, I almost, I was on the verge of spilling my guts to her immediately on the telephone because I was in a fury and in a bad mood. And I just thought, you know what, I've, you know, I've had it. And this is more to do with the build up to this telephone call where I had, I had actually already spoken at great length to Ken Auletta, who's the New Yorker journalist, and pretty much told him everything that the story had got squashed. And this was in 2013. Nice. And so at this point, because I was in that slightly obstreperous mood, I was like, you know what, this is, I, I, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna talk. It's, it's time. I'm just gonna talk. Yeah. You know, who cares? <laughs> Um, so I did a little bit of, of due diligence and discovered, you know, that she was absolutely who she said she was and kosher and, and, you know, potentially on the right side. And so I did start talking to her. I was also being messaged furiously at that time by Ronan Farrow, hilariously uh, on Facebook, but I hadn't accepted, I hadn't messaged him back because all I had done was seen the picture of this outrageously handsome blonde young man and I was like oh this is a fishing exercise there's there can't be a a, a serious journalist from the New Yorker who looks like that <laughs> so I had completely ignored Ronan Farrow's <laughs> messages until I started speaking to Jodie when she said have you spoken to Ronan Farrow and I was like oh is he a real journalist I've been ignoring him because he was too handsome but Zelda, you know, there must have been a moment still, you know, despite the fact that then you went on and talked to Jody and, and obviously you talked to Ronan as well. But there must still have been a moment when you sort of crossed the Rubicon, because talking to a journalist off the record and telling them, OK, I'm going to stand up and publicly break my NDA. And you were the very first person to do this with the Weinstein NDAs. Like what what happened in that moment to make was it just cumulative, like, you know? No, well, I, I, can, I can tell you exactly. What I said to Jodie was, as we were speaking over weeks, I said to her, I'll break, I have no issue with breaking my NDA. If you can find two or three other women to stand up and break theirs with me, because if two or three of us stand up and do it, then, you know, exactly. we're safe. Yes. And she said she'd try, however, that, wasn't forthcoming when they published the New York Times article I was actually really underwhelmed and quite upset because I thought it was a really weak article mm -hmm. and I didn't think it would have any impact <laughs> and she had taken out a huge amount of details that I had given her that I was happy for her to use which I felt were possible to have been found corroborated by other people so not to be seen directly from coming from me and she didn't use them because she said she was protecting me. Right. And the, so the moment that article came out, I then got on the phone to Ronan Farrow because I was like, well, someone's got to do better than that. Right. Little did I know. And this was really the point that took me towards the, when I crossed the Rubicon, as you said, which was a very clear moment. Ronan told me that he had six rape allegations. Now that was the first time I had heard of actual rape allegations, not attempted rape or sexual mm -hmm. assault or sexual mm -hmm. harassment. And I was so rocked by that, mm. rocked and shocked mm. and horrified that in that moment, I knew that I had a moral duty to stand up and break my NDA because there was no way that whatever happened, if I didn't break my NDA, 
I would ever be able to look at myself in the mirror again if I knew I kept silent at that point. When I signed that NDA 22 years ago, all I was aware of was that Harvey had tried to sexually assault and rape my colleague. I knew that he had affairs with actresses. I did not know that he had ever. I thought the only people that he used his sort of power over really was his employees. So when I discovered 22 years later that he had, there were rape allegations, it was very simple, it was black and white. It was still an incredibly courageous thing to do and an incredibly important moment. What was it that you hoped or did you have hopes and expectations that you're standing up and declaring this publicly? What were the consequences going to be? What did you hope was going to happen next? I genuinely, in my naivety, thought that if I broke my NDA, and I even said this in the article in the Financial Times where I broke it, I said, hopefully when other people who've signed these agreements see that I've come forward and the sky hasn't fallen in, they will come forward also. And I thought there would be a sort of avalanche, literally the next day, (laughs) of hundreds of people, men, women, you know, coming forward saying, I signed an NDA, I signed an NDA, I signed an NDA. But I thought particularly people who'd signed them with Harvey Weinstein, because in that moment, you know, Harvey's life was in absolute freefall. The entire world at that moment, for yeah. right or wrong, were focused on Harvey's right. and sexual he, predatory behavior. And I was like, yeah, yeah, this is the moment. If anybody's gonna step forward, they'll step forward. If one person does it, I'll be the Jenga, the Jenga brick that makes everyone else step forward. You know, which was really important at that moment that made me break that NDA was once I'd made that decision, I was gonna break my NDA. I went to the lawyers who represented me when I was made to sign the agreement back in 98. And because I wanted to find out if there was a legal, a safe legal loophole or just a legal loophole in the agreement, which meant that I could break it safely. I was not allowed to hold a copy of the agreement. I had nothing. So I couldn't check. All I had was a piece of paper that told me that I was allowed to look at my agreement under supervision with my lawyer. So I contacted the lawyers. I went to meet with the senior partner of the firm who had my agreement. And he looked at me and said, there's no way you can break this agreement. I was very wound up and angry at this point and agitated because I really wanted to get to break the agreement and I had hoped that there'd be a safe way. And he said to me, why? And he laughed. And I remember this is what he did to me through the entire negotiation process 23 years previously. He laughed at me and he was like, why Why are you doing this? I mean, Harvey's got now, you know, Harvey's it's out there. And I remember just looking at him and going, but don't you understand the significance of this agreement? The horror for me was that the law was enabling and protecting the perpetrator of a criminal offence, of a monster. And I couldn't equate- your lawyer telling you there was no way you could break it, except- 23 years later, and I said, there are rape allegations on this man, and you are still telling me that this agreement is okay. Do you think that a big part of what is now, you know, an industry, of NDAs 
that we see being attached to all kinds of agreements um, that, you know, quietly get people out of workplaces for sexual misconduct, for racism, et cetera, et cetera, and more. How much of that do you think is being um, encouraged, reinforced, sustained by lawyers? 80%. So I don't know. I mean, I'm plucking that out of the air. In other words, a lot. You're saying yes. a lot of it comes down to the way that lawyers approach yes. this. And I'm not saying that lawyers are unethical and criminal. Right. What I'm saying is, is that they see this as a panacea, an easy option. They're not doing anything wrong, you know. And this is my big issue and why I've been, you know, really chasing the regulators. It's like yeah. it's not a individual solicitor's fault. Because he is following the rule book. Lawyers follow the rule book. The rule book does not say that what they're doing is wrong. And it has turned into a very easy money making pr process that apparently serves both parties happily. Mm. But this is a myth. And it's a myth that the lawyers believe. And from, from the lawyers that I've met and things that I've spoken at in the last three years, lawyers have come to me just as horrified saying, we've never thought about it. And what do you think is the myth that makes lawyers who act for people like you, not for the perpetrator? They think that they are giving you a clean slate mm. and some money so that you have time and space to reflect, gather yourself and start again with okay, no issues. Okay, what's the problem with that? You don't realise, nor do the lawyers realise, the effect and the grave effect that signing a document that takes away your voice, that stops you being able to acknowledge, for some people, a major trauma, yep. to be able to speak potentially to their own family members. In my case, I wasn't even allowed to speak to a therapist or... You know, I mean, my agreement I know is is particularly extreme, but it has a huge mental and emotional effect on people. And then you don't it's think about the fact that you're passing the trash to another place. Yeah. Happen again. But also the simple thing you don't simple things you don't think about, like when you go for your next job interview, and they go, oh, okay, so why is it that you left this fabulous job? that you then have to lie. You have to lie. Right, um, it's built on, each lie gets built on the lie yeah. that happens. And yourself, you know, your self-worth falls and the amount of people I've met whose lives, emotional and psychological lives and physical health have been completely and utterly destroyed by the simple thing of signing an NDA, which even they at the time thought was a good thing. The biggest sim problem on top of that is, as you say, the only person that that, the only thing that an NDA protects is the perpetrator and the, and the company. Mm. And that person then can continue to behave with total impunity. He's actually been given, you know, a green card yeah. to do, continue doing what he wants. And anybody who uh, discloses is subject, as I was, of course, to um, accusations of defamation. The other thing that was very interesting was when I went to my lawyer and I couldn't get help from him, I then approached six or seven really big hard-hitting law firms because I thought I would need a hard-hitting law firm to ask if they would help me. And this was the final nail in the coffin for me and why I that day 
rang the FT and said, I want to break it right now, right right now. I want to, I want this in the papers. I don't care that I have no legal advice. I don't care because I discovered that all of these law firms wouldn't touch me with a barge pole because, oh, one of their biggest revenue streams, it seems, are these agreements. And they knew that they, a lot of them are unenforceable. And that was what blew my mind. That last thing blew my mind. And I was like, okay, this is an epidemic. This isn't just my agreement. I thought it was just my agreement. I was like, this is an epidemic, a filthy, dirty epidemic that has to be exposed. So one of the things that has, I think, brought you and I together is our passion for doing something about this issue. And Mm -hmm. seeing, you know, the baby steps that have been taken, important steps that have been taken in some legislatures in the US. There were originally some moves towards legislation in England and Wales that fell apart. There's increasingly pressure on universities to stop giving NDAs. And we are now talking about working together to develop an international campaign to draw attention to what happens is, you know, as you say, the lie upon the lie upon the lie and to stop lawyers facilitating these types of agreements. So do you want to say a little bit for people who are listening about the beginning of our plan, our master plan to take over the world here? (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, as you say, there's some, there's, there are baby steps. There's the beginning of Lot, there's lots of new legislation in various states in the US. There are already public sector companies that are taking responsibility and have pledged not to use NDAs. If companies like the BBC can do that, why aren't our governments doing it? Why aren't the regulators, you know, helping their solicitors, their attorneys? NDAs were made to protect in intellectual property. That is the only thing that they should be used for. That is the only thing that they should original purpose, yeah. And if we, the only way we can stop that happening is by changing legislation and regulation. And that needs to happen on an international level. On a global level. And it's it's actually not as difficult and as scary as, as every lawyer likes to make out. It's actually very simple. It just needs to be stopped. This is not stopping people having settlement agreements. This is not stopping people being protected by confidentiality. I am really excited about what we're going to be able to do together. Me too. Hashtag me too on the biggest, yeah. biggest, <laughs> in the biggest way ever meant. This is, this is, this ultimately, it won't be as sexy, but this will be bigger and more important. Usually important. Because we're not just talking really about people in high profile positions. We're talking about somebody who is sexually harassed at the grocery store gets paid off with a paltry amount and signs an NDA. It's about the abuse of power and it is protecting the vulnerable and that's what the law should do. We should all be equal in the eyes of the law and currently you can buy justice and you can buy silence and that is unethical and should be illegal. Thank you Zelda so much. Not at all. I'm very excited about about the next few months. Wow. Well, you know, because we were just discussing it, how fired up this conversation got me. (laughs) I do. (laughs) 
um there was there's a lot to talk about here yeah um and I will say I actually found myself while I was listening to the recording thinking like I, I wanted to be longer like I want more mm. <laughs> with mm. Zelda I want to hear more about this yeah and hear, hear the two of you talk about it yeah. more so I hope we can maybe do further episodes I hope so too. with her but you know in this conversation one of the first things that struck me that you talked about with her earlier on was how rocked which was the word she used she was when Ronan Farrow was the one who told her about the six at that time rape allegations against Harvey Weinstein and she was just shocked and that was what drove her to to feel like she had to speak out like moral it was the final straw yeah it was the final straw yeah and hearing her say that for me it kind of really highlights how how excellent abusers and really our entire culture are at isolating victims from each other and making them feel like this has only happened to them it's a great illustration absolutely i mean i it makes me think about that uh, wonderful quote from rebecca solnit that if we identify rape and sexual assault as dots instead of seeing an isolated instance instead of seeing them as you know multiple multiple dots if we were to dot you know the map what we would actually see is one big stain Uh, and so ndas contribute even further to people's shame because not only are they hesitant about talking about something that they might have self-blamed for but now they're actually being threatened legally Mm -hmm. with not speaking out and so this just makes that problem of isolation even worse yeah and then you start hearing about the details of her nda which as you you know has like none of this is uncommon at all um so you know just a few of the things uh, not allowed to have a copy of her own could only look at it you know with under the supervision of a lawyer and then she was actually not even allowed to speak about any of this with a therapist Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. which is horrifying to agree I can't even express right um and then she said something that really I thought oh my god like that has never occurred to me but yeah of course that makes so much sense and it's awful that she has had to lie to prospective employers about why why she, she left, left this great yeah. yeah which is like all of this all together mm. like is is awful and cruel and and let me just be really clear for people listening you know I hear frequently from people who signed NDAs didn't really understand them, regretted it, you know, either immediately or, you know, have come to regret it. And all of these particular restrictions, with the exception of not having a copy, although mm-hmm. I have heard from people involved in the criminal process who are covered by a publication ban without access to that, but no access to a therapist, can't talk to a therapist, can't tell a prospective that's employer. Shocking. I mean, this is not just something that happened 20 years ago. This is something that's happening right now yeah. in Canada frequently. And then if, of course the context here, you know, with all of this, and yet her lawyer is saying to her, I don't understand why you would mm-hmm. want to break this NDA, mm-hmm. which really speaks to the culture of, of lawyers around this issue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the expressions that, that I hear all the time is that this helps people to move on. Mm-hmm. I, and I've got to the point that I just find this expression infuriating. And I know that other survivors do as well, because moving on is different for everybody and it's complex. But the idea that being 
kept in a constant state of terror that you might be subject to legal action for inadvertently yeah. breaking some kind of legal restriction that you don't fully understand. Believe me, people out there, that is not moving on. And, and this is the story that I, that I hear all the time. And I think that, you know, I, I'm, I'm really torn over whether or not lawyers just simply don't understand that. And they've just kind of appropriated this language of moving on or whether, in fact, it's much more cynical than that, because unfortunately, making a settlement and not having to go to trial and getting your contingency fee is mm -hmm. in the financial interests of lawyers. And, you know, before everybody goes crazy out there, I'm not saying that this is what all lawyers are doing. But there is an unfortunate congruence between pressuring your own client into a settlement. And this is an issue I've seen as a mediator for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And the fact that once that settlement is made, if you think the trial outcome is a little uncertain, then you will get your, your financial compensation. So there is a complicity here to do it yeah. this way for then, people representing complainants and victims, as well as those representing employers and, and perpetrators. Yeah, it certainly informs whether they mean it to or not, the way they react to yeah. NDAs. And then such an important, important point to make as the one that Zelda brought up towards the end of your conversation, which is that doing away with non-disclosure agreements in these circumstances does not mean doing away with settlement agreements right. or with confidentiality right. at all. That's not what this is at all. And people don't seem to understand that. Right, right. And and exactly, Dana. I mean, this is one of the things I really hope people will take away from this. Or if they're interested in more information, you know, I can I can certainly provide that and Zelda can as well. It's not about saying that everybody has to go public. Lots of people want to be private about this, but you can give a confidentiality agreement, protect the identity of the victim without at the same time protecting the identity of the perpetrator or the employer. I mean, it's just ridiculous to say it has to be both ways. You know, if you make an agreement with somebody to, you know, they will compensate you for $1,000, you don't have to compensate them back for $1,000. It's just about what gets agreed. So it can be a one-sided confidentiality agreement. They don't need to have to agree to protect the perpetrator or the employer, which quite honestly is often the same thing because the employer doesn't want people knowing about this either because usually it's been going on for years and years and it's going to make them look really yeah. bad if it comes out, you know, finally now. So absolutely, it's not about taking confidentiality away from victims and it's also not even taking away NDAs for what they were originally established for, which was to protect confidential business information when somebody moved between empl employers. That was the purpose. And Zelda and I, along with a bunch of other people now, are working um, actually with people in, I think it's seven, up to seven different countries now. We are working on an international campaign to really raise awareness about this and stop some of the, the myth-making about how NDAs are there for the benefit of victims. And I really hope that this is going to have an impact. We're already seeing the beginnings of, of new legislation. California, which legislated to ban NDAs for sexual harassment, is now extending that to uh, racial harassment and discrimination. And then in Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, there is a senator in the Republic of Ireland named Lynn Ruan, who is introducing an NDA bill there, which would ban NDAs in a whole range of different circumstances, and also make it clear that a victim cannot, you know, 
prohibit the, the release of information to third parties, not that any victims actually would want to do that, mm -hmm. but if there is some kind of third party potential here, this, this person gets moved somewhere else, and usually people who behave like this don't do it once only, they will continue. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that bill also takes care of that by saying you can't make an agreement that's going to damage other third parties. Yeah. So I really hope that this is a moment in which we can start to see some change here. Hello there, I'm Jordan Furlong, and this is In Other News. So if you happen to have tuned into this segment last week, you would have heard me speak at some length about legal regulatory sandboxes and the possibility that we might very soon have one here in Ontario. So if you already listened to that segment, you can feel free to fast forward a few minutes so that I can bring everyone else up to speed. Okay. A regulatory sandbox is basically a safe space for innovation. It's like a closely monitored lab where experiments can be carried out, except that these experiments are new types of services that are prohibited by current regulations, but that look like they could be beneficial to the public. Now, the regulator wants to give these experimental services a try, but it doesn't want to immediately authorize a service that doesn't meet the established criteria for authorization, sight unseen, so it creates a sandbox where the service can be tried out under close supervision to see whether the benefits it provides outweigh the risks or the harms that it creates. Now, regulatory sandboxes started out a few years ago in the financial services sector, but more recently they've begun spreading to the law. Utah in the U.S. was the first jurisdiction in North America to approve and open a legal regulatory sandbox late last summer. British Columbia became the first Canadian province to approve a legal sandbox late last year. And earlier this month, a task force appointed by Ontario's Law Society came out with a report recommending that Ontario follow these other jurisdictions and set up a sandbox specifically geared towards legal services based on innovative technology. And on April 22nd, the Law Society's Board of Governors held a vote on whether or not to accept that recommendation. Okay, so now we can bring in all the people who were here last week, and now everyone is up to speed. Great. I am very glad to tell you that the Law Society has approved the sandbox, which I think is awesome. The vote actually wasn't as close as I thought it was going to be. Although there were quite a few dissenters who believed the sandbox was a bad idea, but most of the governors thought differently. They decided that the sandbox was the right way to go towards improving access to justice, towards exercising the law society's regulatory role responsibly, and towards gathering data about the use of technology to deliver legal services. Let me run briefly through some of the objections to the sandbox that have been raised. Some of the governors during the debate at the Law Society said the sandbox would use Law Society funds collected from lawyers and licensed paralegals to essentially fund competition to those professionals. To which I say, 
That is not remotely a legitimate objection. If you're a governor of the legal profession in this province, your job is to regulate legal services for the benefit of the public, not to protect lawyers' turf. So, enough of that. Other people said the sandbox's structure wasn't detailed enough and didn't provide enough information about how it would go about its work. I sort of get that, but keep in mind, legal regulatory sandboxes are less than a year old anywhere, and there's almost no precedent for them. It's not like Ontario has a ton of examples to base its proposal on. The sandbox will be closely monitored in its construction and application, I have no doubt about that. And a third objection actually comes from reformers, who say, this isn't radical enough. It's a half measure, a stalling tactic. It's restricted only to technology providers. It should be much more open. And again, I get that as well. I can see the attraction of just opening the doors to all potential providers and seeing what happens. But I'm also mindful that the Law Society does have a statutory duty to ensure the best interests of the public in the area of legal services are being protected. And I'm fully aware that many governors of the profession are simply not ready to approve anything that radical. The people who voted for a sandbox almost certainly would not have voted for a more, far more open approach. The sandbox strikes me as a more than acceptable middle way to advance innovation and improve the quality and quantity of solutions in the legal sector. It is too fast for some people, it's too slow for others, but in a contentious environment for legal regulation and a great deal of uncertainty in our world generally, I think a moderate middle path these days has a lot to recommend it. What comes next? Nobody really knows. Many reporters contacted me and asked what sort of entities I thought would apply to the sandbox. And I said, probably a mix of major national or global providers of business to consumer legal services. And at the other end, various startups and small players, especially those coming from Toronto's legal technology sector. We don't really know. And while that's kind of scary for some people, for me, it's more exhilarating. It means we finally have a chance for Canada's largest province to really encourage innovation in legal services in an authorized format with a goal towards improving access to justice. And that is manifestly a goal worth taking chances for. That was In Other News, and I'm Jordan Furlong.